How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the church it as suspicious? Trying to hold the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to get answers, I would but they never don't even be a part of a church that is not welcoming the church is the most local political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is when the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in way, so when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the next episode of the church needs therapy now, this is going to be the third episode that we record about Donald Trump. And like I said, it's not that I personally have any obsession with or even am constantly thinking about Donald Trump. Because to be honest, I'm not really that guy. I'm not the one who's always going down wormholes of political pundits. I'm not the one who's angry over politicians and what they're doing obviously I pay attention obviously as a follower of Jesus I have strong convictions about how our world is organized specifically with the most marginalized being pushed towards the center in the kingdom of God so it's not like I'm always talking about Trump because I'm personally obsessed it was simply this was one of the first things I was going to talk about because it was an election year and when we started taking the church to therapy, I quickly realized there was no simple way through this. So with that said, episode three, and I think this will be my last one for now, even though I could probably do 10 more, the church and Donald Trump, we're going to talk a little bit more about that relationship today and a little bit of a conclusion I have about what it means right now to have faith in Jesus and to proclaim allegiance to Donald Trump. So let me start off with something I haven't talked about before, because today what I'm going to talk about is some of the things Trump says or has said about immigrants and foreigners and people of color. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what the Bible has said about foreigners and immigrants and those who we see as other. And then we're going to explore how the church can support someone whose relationships with immigrants and foreigners and people of color or those who we see as other or those who the dominant culture sees as other can be so incongruent with the thread that's woven through the Bible itself. So first, I'm going to tell this story that might not make sense at first, but then with a little bit of it explaining, you'll see why I'm telling it. There once was this young minister sitting in her house on a Sunday afternoon who was disturbed by a frantic banging on the front door. Upon opening the door, she was confronted by a distraught member of her church. It was obvious that he was exhausted from running to her house and that he was on the verge of tears. What's wrong? asked the minister. Please, can you help? replied the man. A kind and considerate and wonderful family in the area is in great trouble. 
The husband recently lost his job. The wife can't work due to health problems. They have three young children to look after. And the man's mother lives with them and she is unwell and is basically in need of constant care. They are one day late with the rent. But despite the fact that they have lived there 10 years with no problems and will likely have the money later in the week, the landlord is going to kick them out onto the street if they don't pay the full amount by the end of the day. That's terrible, said the minister. Of course we will help. I can go get some money from the church fund to make up the shortfall. And and I forgot. Anyways, how did you say you know the people? Oh, replied the man at the door. I'm the landlord. This person is deeply concerned for the family being evicted and at the same time is the landlord that is evicting them. And we hear that and we think, that doesn't make any sense. How could you say you care and then act in such an opposite way? How could somebody be so blind? The gap between the landlord's concern for the people and his behavior that is causing them the very harm he's concerned about is wide or is so wide that it seems absurd when you hear this story. And the real absurdity of the story is not that there is a gap between the landlord's beliefs and his actions, right? We all have gaps between our beliefs and our actions. The absurdity is the fact that he doesn't wrestle with, he doesn't seem to have any inner inner conflict about, and he doesn't experience what we see as a gap as any kind of conflict or issue at all. His behavior completely betrays his beliefs, and he sees no issue with it at all. We're going to come back to this story at the end. So like the other few episodes, let's take a simple approach like we did last time. Let's explore, or last time we explored a little bit of Trump's character and juxtaposed it with the character of Christ and the character of God as expressed in the Bible. And this time we're going to do this really simple thing. We're going to explore some of Trump's views of foreigners and immigrants and people of color and compare those with the character of God and the life of Jesus. When we do this, I hope it at least provides a bit of a framework for people to answer the question. How, as a Christian, can you reconcile your support of Donald Trump and your allegiance to Jesus? And also to those who are critical of Trump, how can you justify your strong critique of Trump and your passion for Jesus? Now let's begin by looking at some of the things Trump has said about immigrants and people of color and other countries over the years. Now, for obvious reasons, this is not going to be an exhaustive list. Because if it was, it would be a four-hour episode. Boom! That was a joke to begin with. Nevertheless, let's take a look at just a few things to kind of make the point today. Here's one. Trump pushed for years the false idea that Barack Obama was a secret Muslim. And here's the thing. Barack Obama has sat through more church services than Donald Trump can even imagine a single human being sitting through. You can see a video of Barack Obama singing Amazing Grace. And when there's video of Trump on stage, when people are singing it, he doesn't lip sync even one word because I'm pretty sure he doesn't know it. 
Now, maybe he was just chilling or maybe he didn't do it because he didn't even know the words. See, Obama has always claimed the Christian faith. He's he's told stories publicly about receiving Jesus sort of at the at the words of another pastor. And I've actually even had lunch with Barack Obama's former pastor in Chicago. So here's another thing. The idea that if Barack was a Muslim, that somehow that alone would make him dangerous or untrustworthy or unqualified is not only ridiculous, it's extremely problematic and xenophobic. As if somebody who was Muslim could not have the character to serve our nation well, to live a life of love, and to live a life that organizes people for the common good. So it's like, one, you doing that isn't even true when he talks about Obama as a Muslim, but two, you're, you're, you're almost like you're threatening to expose the fact that he is a Muslim because somehow, what, that makes him dangerous or unfit, which is itself totally xenophobic. Right, here's another one. There was a time where Trump was referring to large groups of people from Mexico. And he had this quote where he said, they're rapists and some, I assume, are good people. So after using some of the most demonizing labels and damning characteristics for people who represent an entire country, Trump says he assumes that some are good people. So basically, based on the language, the majority of the country are filth or rapists or dangerous. But he assumes, I mean, look, come on. He assumes that some are good people. And that's just his assumption. He doesn't even guarantee it. Do you understand the magnitude of a president classifying an entire group of people or an entire country as that horrible? And we almost forget these things. Right there's there's many reports about how behind the scenes Trump referred to Haiti, El Salvador, and Africa, which Africa is a continent by the way, and Africa as shithole countries. And in that same moment, it was also claimed that Trump said the U.S. should get more people from places like Norway. Hmm, I wonder what dis- di- makes the distinction between Norway and Haiti and El Salvador and Africa. And after a source in the room with Trump shared about these comments and the White House was asked about the comments, they never denied it. They just deflected it. So tr- shithole countries. I wonder which countries he was talking about and why. I wonder what the criteria is for him to declare entire countries as shitholes. Moms, kids, dads, families, grandparents working as hard as they can to provide and yet they're a part of a shithole country. What does that mean about the people? Are they automatically like that? Are they identified with that? Is that why he wouldn't want them in? And as a quick side note, Based on whatever criteria I assume, this is just an assumption that Trump is using to declare a country as a shithole country, I assume also that if he knew anything about Nazareth, which is the area where Jesus was from, he would also think that place was a shithole country too, and he probably wouldn't want anybody from there coming into the United States of America either. There's also another story where Trump was referring 
to these well-known well-known group of women that were critiquing him. The U.S. Representative Ayanna Presley, um, Ilan Omar, AOC, and Rashida Tlaib, when they offered critiques of the president, which basically just means you could be doing better. A critique isn't a negation of who you are. It's just a, a claim about what you can do better. Trump said that those women should go back where they came from. So they're offering critiques and ideas about creating a better country and Trump sees them as vicious and he says they need to go back to where they came from even though three out of four of them were born in the United States and the fourth is a naturalized citizen. So when Trump says go back to where they came from, I assume one of the women says, do you mean Ohio where I grew up and I'm, yeah, I am going to go back for Thanksgiving and have all the same awkward family conversations as anyone else. Are you? T- is that where I'm supposed to go back from? I wonder if Trump would have said, I wonder if it was four white women as representatives who were critiquing Donald Trump. I wonder if he would have suggested that they should go back to where they came from. Or if he's really suggesting that people of color are not really American, which is a pretty classic trope for Donald Trump and his administration. Now, I don't want to do this too long. On May, This is just a weird one. On May 5th, 2016, for the Mexican holiday of Cinco de Mayo, Donald Trump posted a photo of himself eating a taco bowl to Facebook and Twitter captioned, happy hashtag Cinco de Mayo. The best taco bowls are made in the Trump Tower grill. I love Hispanics. What does that... That that one's just weird and funny to me. What does that even mean? The best taco bowls are made in Trump Tower. Weird claim to make. And he says, I love Hispanics. Oh, and I, of course, there was also the classic statement that he made at a press conference slash he probably treated it like a rally when he was standing in front of one of these jets. And as he was telling these stories and having this conversation with everybody out there, He said he saw a black supporter in the crowd, and then he said, look at my African-American over here. Ha ha, are you the greatest? He said, look at my African-American over here. And then he went on to tell a story of a black guy behaving at his rally, as if we should somehow be surprised that a black person was behaving. See, I could go on and on about how many statements he's made like this. These four just kind of represent and symbolize Trump's posture towards immigrants and towards people of color. And by the way, this doesn't even get into Trump's policies that have led to children being taken from families at the border and locked in cages, the tax cuts that benefited the wealthiest 1%, dismantling regulations that protect low to middle income workers, ending temporary protected status for hundreds of thousands of immigrant workers, many of whom were raised in the United States for decades, ending DACA and forcing young immigrant workers out of the regulated labor market and into the shadow labor market where they are easily exploitable by employers by virtue of losing their ability to work lawfully, cutting billions of dollars from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, which disproportionately affects black and brown people. It goes on and on and on. 
Trump has shown a consistent ethic of behavior that is leveraged against the flourishing of immigrants, people of color, and poor people in our country. Now, few things that the scripture says, because we're just kind of juxtaposing these and putting them next to each other. Genesis 23, 4, you shall also love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Exodus 23, 9, do not oppress a foreigner. Deuteronomy 10, 19, the alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19.34, cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all people shall say amen. Job 29.15-17, the Lord watches over the strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Psalm 146.9, for if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. I could go on. I'm going to skip over a bunch. Matthew 5.43-44, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Matthew twenty five thirty five. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brethren or my brothers and sisters, you did for me. Acts ten thirty four. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. And on top of all that, two of the defining markers of Jesus's ministry was his identification with the marginalized and his solidarity with the oppressed. You have Trump's administration consistently leveraging the power to work against some of the most vulnerable people for women, for LGBTQ people, for people of color, and for immigrants. You see the a system leveraged against their flourishing, and then you see a thread woven throughout the entirety of the Bible that shows the heart of the people can express the heart of God best by how they care for, pay attention to, and look out for those who are on the margins, those who are strangers, those who are looking for a better way. Now, let's go back to that parable. The landlord came to the pastor asking her for help because a family was going to be put out on the street. And the landlord was extremely distraught over it, right? Remember I told that story in the beginning. By the end of it, the pastor asked the man who had come, how do you know the family? And the man answered by saying, I'm the landlord. Now, here's how, here's why I think this story is so helpful for us right now. Probably about 10 to 11 years ago, I first heard Peter Rollins talk or write about this concept of being a theoretical believer and a practical unbeliever. So in theory, you believe something, but in practice, you deny it. This sometimes is called a performative contradiction. It means you claim you believe something, but you perform performatively deny it because your material behavior and actions are not aligned with your belief. See, no matter what you say you believe consciously, your actions are an expression of your true beliefs. 
right? It's the leader who says they believe in constructive feedback, but then every time someone offers them suggestions or feedback, they, they deflect, get defensive, and shut down. It's the person who says they want their life to be grounded in compassion and faith and risk and yet continue to work a job they hate because it's safe, it's lucrative, and it's comfortable. It's the one who says they believe in vulnerability but avoid any space that carries the potential for them to be vulnerable and to actually live that out. Each of these people denies what they say they believe with their lived existence. So in theory, they believe these things, but in practice, they actually deny them. So that's what we saw in the landlord. The person was deeply concerned for the family, but they were also the one who was putting them out on the street. And they saw absolutely no gap or conflict in the beliefs they had about how much they cared about them and the practices they did. They were actually putting those people on the street. Now, here's what I would say. Jesus' kingdom is a critique of and a challenge to Trump's America. The kingdom of God is a critique of a challenge to and it actually subverts the vision of America that Trump has been preaching and living out this entire time. To believe in Jesus and call yourself a Christian and to support the dehumanizing policies, the demeaning language, and the demonizing speech towards people on the margins is to engage in the process of being a theoretical believer, but a practical unbeliever. See, in theory, you believe in Jesus, but in practice, through that support, you are denying and contradicting the very Jesus, the very kingdom that you say you support. So for Christians who claim faith in Jesus and express allegiance to Trump, this person theoretically believes in the kingdom of God, but in practice supports Trump's America. This person theoretically believes in the Jesus who stood in solidarity with the oppressed, but in practice supports a man who has consistently enacted policies that disenfranchise those very people. This person theoretically believes in the Jesus who was for the poor, but in practice supports a man whose power bends towards the rich. This person theoretically believes in the Jesus who constantly uplifted, empowered, and highlighted the dignity and power of women, but in practice support a man who has shown a blatant history of disrespect, dehumanization, and incredulity toward women. So that story of the landlord being worried about the very tenants that he's kicking out on the the street seems ridiculous. But when you think about it through the lens of being a theoretical believer and a practical unbeliever, I think the one who declares faith in Jesus and allegiance to Trump has a lot more in common with that landlord than they realize. And like I said in the first episode, For churches who claim not only to love God's word or Jesus, but also claim, but also who claim that the Bible is uniquely inspired by God, it would appear there is some serious conflict between the word of God and the word of Trump or Jesus's vision of the kingdom of God and Trump's vision of what America should be like. Now, here's a couple thoughts to conclude with. One is a great quote 
I forget who said it. So if, if you if you get this, please look it up and you can DM me and let me know. But this great quote says, the true atheist is the one who refuses to see God's image in the face of their neighbor. See, that isn't about whether or not you theoretically believe in God. It shows how your belief in God is really manifested by whether or not you can see the image of God in the face of your neighbor or of those on the margins or of people of color or of people who have been historically disenfranchised and disempowered and dehumanized by our country. It's not whether or not you believe in God, it's whether or not you can actually see God in the face of your neighbor, right? The true atheist is the one who can't see God on the margins and in the faces of those who look different from how they look. And I remember before the Washington Post wrote this story and they asked the question, why does Trump get away with everything? That's just simple. Why does he get away with everything he does? And essentially the conclusion they came to was it's because of his supporters. Trump can do what he does and say what he says because his supporters support him, back him, cheer him, justify him, and defend him all the time. And the majority of his supporters would also identify as Christian. So you have a large portion of the church, the one I'm saying desperately needs therapy, as the foundational strength of Donald Trump's campaign in 2016, presidency the past four years, and his move to get reelected right now in 2020. You can be a theoretical believer in Jesus and a practical supporter of Donald Trump. So as the church is in therapy today, she needs to see if there is a gap between her belief in Jesus and his vision of the kingdom of God and her allegiance to Trump and his vision of Trump's America. Because if she does, maybe she will discover that she is a lot more like that landlord who says he cares about this family, but at the same time is the one who is kicking them out on the streets.